We're going to be in Judges chapter 3 this morning. Judges chapter 3. I've titled the sermon this morning, Look What They Did, Look What God Did. Look what they did and look what God did. Let's bow in prayer before we get started. Father, I pray that you would please make our hearts very attentive to your word this morning. I pray that even before coming this morning that you have been preparing our hearts to hear from you. Lord, I truly believe and know that you have something for each one of us here. Lord, though every one of us in this room are in a different place, I believe that you have a word specifically for each one of us in this text this morning. And Lord, I pray that you please make it clear. And I pray also, please give us grace to walk out in obedience to what you have for us this morning. Or, Lord, if it's a word of encouragement, please, Lord, I pray that that would be received well from your mouth and your heart this morning to ours. Lord, we love you very much. And I pray this in your son's perfect name. Amen. So Judges chapter 3, go ahead and be turning there. Look what they did, look what God did. We're going to continue on in the book of Judges, and as you know, unfortunately, this is not the happiest book in the Bible. This is actually somewhat of a tragic book because it shows us so many of the failures of the people of Israel during this time where they threw off the Lord's ways and his commands, and we get to see again and again how God responded to that, but also how God responded not only in judgment, but also in deliverance, because we see his mighty hand here as they cried out to him. So let's go ahead and just get right into the text, because we have a lot of ground to cover. We're going to break it up into two parts. The, part, uh, the first part is going to be verses 1 through 6, which really set us up for verses 7 through 11, when a judge named Othniel will come along, and he's the one who saves them from their trouble. But verses 1 through 6 show us how they got in the trouble in the first place. So let's look at verses 1 through 6. It says, Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon from Mount, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. Oh, lots of names, right? They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commands of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Then the author goes on to name these five different nations that the Lord left. We see for the testing of them, we're heard, and we're told that they may know war, that they may know war was what was laid out for us there in verse 2. What would be the purpose of teaching them war. Why do they need to know war? 
That was my question. Well, most immediately, we actually get the answer to this. Most immediately in verse 4 tells us that it was to find out whether or not Israel would obey the Lord, right? But let's dig a bit deeper with the answer to this because there's more. I believe there's, there's more to this than just verse 4. Concerning the purpose of teaching them war, let me ask you this. I want you to think about your grandfather. In some of your cases, it's going to be your father. And in some of you cases of your little ones here, it's going to be your great-grandfather. But I, I want you to think about that man. And in general, because I know there are exceptions to this, but in general, is there a difference between how he was as a 25-year-old because of the hardships he went through and because of the war that he experienced? Because some of you, your grandfather, your father was in a war, wasn't he? Is there a difference between how he was as a 25-year-old and between the average 25-year-old in our day who's only ever known things to be pretty good and uh, pretty easy in this nation? Is there a difference between those two 25-year-olds? <laughs> Absolutely. A huge difference. I know that there are more reasons behind the yes than what I'm going to mention. However, what I'm going to mention is a big reason why he was much different as a 25-year-old than most 25-year-olds in our day. They are different. These men are different in their character, very different. They're very different in their work ethic. They're very different in their just appreciation of things in general. But a lot of this falls back on the fact that they knew war and they knew hardship. Your grandfather, some of you, your father, some of you, your great-grandfather, he knew hardship and he knew war. I was actually talking to Mr. Coy Davis, that is um, the father of our own Miss Pam here. And he told me, these were his words, paraphrase, this is not verbatim, but he said, most of us went into the war as boys. He said that at the age of 18 and 19, he meant, he said, but being in war for two years, he said, I came out grown up. I came out a man a little bit quicker than he really wanted to, I think, because he knew war. He was wounded even so some of the reason, I believe, why God wanted them to know war and hardship was because hardship has a way of producing things within us. I could think of four things that uh, hardship produces in us. I've got a slide for that even. I believe hardship, number one, causes a person to cry out to God. Hardship causes a person to cry out to God. It makes a person of prayer. Hardship also, number two, causes a person to depend on God. Why? Okay, so he cries out in prayer, he or she cries out in prayer, and then he or she is dependent upon God to answer that prayer. Number three, hardship causes a person to be grateful to God. This causes a person to be thankful. We get the prayer, we get the dependent on God to answer that prayer, then God answers the prayer, and the person says, thank you, Lord, for helping me. And then what does that do? Number four, hardship causes a person to then trust in God. For each one of those steps, it's important. Prayer leads to dependence. And I 
I know that a lot of times we say, don't be dependent. You need to be independent. And that's true in a lot of areas of your life. You need to be independent, but not in your relationship with God, do you? You don't need to be independent from God. You're supposed to be dependent upon him, which then leads you to thank him when you get what you have cried out for in help, whatever that might be. And then you can look back at how he keeps helping you. You can also trust as you read his word. You can say, I'm trusting that you are who you say you are in this book, and I'm trusting that you're going to act towards me as you did towards other believers in this book. And honestly, how I saw you act towards me last month even. And so hardship tends to create people like this when they're trusting in God, when they're God followers, they're people of prayer, they're people of dependence, they're people of thankfulness, and they're people who trust. And those character traits tend to get galvanized in our lives more quickly and more permanently when we know hardship when we know struggle, and when we know tests. And that's just the truth of it. I wish we were wired a bit differently. I wish we didn't need a knock on the head to learn some of these things. I wish we could just sort of come out of the womb knowing them and, and, and just having them in us. But if you're like me, <laughs> for some reason, you tend to always be a student of the school of hard knocks and tend to learn that way, especially when I was younger. I, I hope, with God's help, I'm a bit more wise now than I, I was, and I can just hear from God, and he say, hey, don't do this, and I say, okay. <laughs> but when I was younger, I wasn't quite so ready to receive such instruction. Well, like the nation of Israel, who now has to know war in order to learn these things. Uh, they, they had it actually, they had it well before this because their fathers, but by and large, not perfectly at all, but by and large, this generation right here, right now, in this book, by and large, their fathers before them walked pretty well in their obedience, not perfectly, but pretty well. And so this generation had it sort of well. And they took it for granted. And they got lazy. And they went at ease. And now because of their unbelief and disobedience, the Lord would allow for these nations to rise up and test them. That's what we saw here in the text. I'm going to leave these nations that they may know war is going to rise up and test them. Sadly, verse 6, look at verse 6. Sadly, though, verse 6 shows us they weren't digging in and taking the blows that come with standing firm on God's word. Because look at verse 6. And their daughters, and their daughters, they took to themselves four wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served other God. So verse 6 shows us they weren't digging in and taking the blows that come with standing firm on God's word. What do I mean, taking the blows and that come with standing firm on God's word? This is what I mean. Standing firm on God's word will require a struggle for you in this life. Listen to this. I'm going to say it again. 
standing firm on God's word will require a struggle. It just will. Jesus Christ even said, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Those are Jesus' words. Standing firm on God's words will require a struggle. In what ways? Struggle against the world, the worldly system around us. And what I mean by that is just the worldly system around us that either ignores God or hates God. Everything out there that either ignores God or hates God, that's what I mean by the world. Number two, struggle against your own flesh. Your own fleshly desires to sin and to go contrary to what God says in his word. Number three, struggle against the devil. Who knows where he's going? It's very clear in scripture that hell is prepared for the devil and his angels, it says. He's not there now poking people with a pitchfork. He's not there now doing that. That's Hollywood. That's, what, that's how he's portrayed in Bugs Bunny cartoons and things like that. He's not there now. He's going there now, and he wants to take whoever he can with him. And he's very good at it. Some of us are even sitting in deception right now and don't even know it. Everyone, look at me, please, because this is, this is very important. Some of you, are sitting in deception even right now, and you don't know it. Did you hear me that time? You need to hear that. The devil's very good at his job. And guess what? People who are deceived do not know that they are deceived. That's the very definition of it. Yes? So, standing firm on God's word will require a struggle against the world, against the flesh, against the devil. The people of Israel found it was much easier and less painful if you just compromise on God's word and go along with the world. Because that's true, isn't it? Christian, isn't it just so much easier in life to just go with the flow of the world and the flesh with the devil? No struggle there. No struggle. Easy to do that. The struggle is... Walking in the ways of God. That's why it's hard for you sometimes, Christian. And that's why you can look at your worldly friends and it seems like they just, you know, they're just, they're just goofing off and happy. And... But you keep watching their lives. They fall into ruin. They do. Because here's the truth when it comes to walking, if you just disobey God and become like the world, it's a whole lot less painful to live in the world. And Israel failed the test because we see them intermarrying and making marriage covenants with the godless nations around them. They're showing us in verse 6 that they're failing these tests. It says they, these people were for the testing of Israel. How's Israel doing? F minus. That's how they're doing. They're failing the tests. They're intermarrying with these nations around them a godless nations around them. And what's it producing? Look at the end of verse six. What's it producing in their life? Fruit, good things? No. They served their gods. Compromising on God's word will always lead you 
into destruction. And it will always lead you away from God. I don't know why we think this. It's a deception of the devil, it is, but it's also sometimes in our own twisted logic, we think it's going to work this time. We think, if I compromise on this part, just this small little part, surely I'll still be okay. How's that working out for you? Those of you who compromise on small parts, how's that working out for you? Tell you what, it doesn't work out good when I do it, so I know it doesn't work out good when you do it. (laughs) Verse 7 makes clear. Look at this. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. If you don't know, Baal was the name of a false god among these people. And sometimes just all those other false gods just got lumped in with that name as just like a general name. The Baals, false gods. Asherah was another false god, usually in the form of a pole. Sometimes you'll even hear in the scripture, in the scripture an Asherah pole. That's a, a bit of a morphing of the word. Asherah, Asherah rather. Just false gods of the nations around them. They had different false gods. And what do we find? That the people forget the Lord their God and serve the Baals and the Asherahs. You see, small compromises lead to big compromises. Small compromises with who they were supposed to marry because God commanded them, don't intermarry with the nations around you. They are unbelieving God-haters. Don't intermarry with them. Marry believing God-lovers. That's what he meant by that. It's not an intermarry like black-white thing. No, that's not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about believers and non-believers. That's still true today. Paul says don't be unequally yoked with a non-believer. A yoke is that piece of wood that you put around two oxen so that they plow together, they do a job together. In a marriage, you're bound together like a yoke. It's a good thing. Because you work together. You're going in the same direction. Wherever one goes, the other one goes because you're together. So guess what? If you're unequally yoked, one's going to always be pulling this way towards the world, the flesh, the devil. One's going to be trying to pull this way towards God. You want to know what usually happens? What usually happens is this side, the one that's going towards the world, the flesh, and the devil, pulls the Christian away. Christians sometimes will even say, I'm going to marry this non-believer because I'm, I believe I can save him. Fool. God saves souls, not you. You would be better obeying God <laughs> and seeing what he has for you instead of compromising on little things because, like I say here, small compromises leads to bigger compromises. Small compromise here with Israel, marrying these other nations that were God-haters and didn't know God, Led to big compromises. What kind of big compromises? Well, pretty big compromises. Because what do we see at the end of uh, verse 7? They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals. You know what they did there? They broke commandment number one and number two. 
Let's look at Exodus 20. Exodus 20, this is when God gives the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. Let's look at the first two, because they broke them. A bit of context here before we get into them. I am, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, well, second part of verse 7 says, they forgot the Lord their God. Forgot him. He's not in spot number one anymore, so they broke the first commandment, which says, you shall have no other gods. Number two, you shall not make for yourself to carve image or any likeness of anything that's under that's in heaven or above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So, their small compromise led to some really devastating compromises. Taking commandments one and two and kicking them aside and saying, forget those. Look at the bales. Look at the Asherahs. My wife said this is good to do. My husband said this is good to do. Forget everything we've ever known to be true. Let's try something new. Verse 8. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, whose name I will simply be referring to from here on out as Cushan. And I think you know why. <laughs> and the people of Israel served Cushan eight years. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals. So we see in verse 8, therefore the anger of the Lord was, kin was kindled, and rightly so. These were his chosen people, the, the people of Israel, whom he had blessed. The very first Jew, Abraham, he grabbed and chose and said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to bless those who bless you. And he who curses you, I will curse. I'll make your descendants like the stars of the heavens, like the sands of the sea. I'm choosing you. And I'm going to bless you. Not because you deserve it, but simply because I want to. And he did. And he kept his word made these people so numerous. They were enslaved in Egypt because of a wicked Pharaoh. They were there for 400 years. And God flexed his arm and did something that the world still talks about to this day with the 10 plagues. You even hear it talked about in movies, movie references and things like that, places that aren't the Bible. You'll hear about the 10 plagues and you hear about the parting of the Red Sea and things like that. Even just in passing, people might make reference to it. People still talk about it. God flexed his muscles and delivered his people and brought them out and gave them a law and said, I'm going to bless you and give you this land. He was so good to them, so good to them. Though they were so <laughs> stiff-necked 
stubborn, rebellious. I'm telling you right now, I'm just telling you. Had you been God during all those years, you would have killed them all. You are not as patient as God is. If you just read through it, people who people will show you that they've never read the Old Testament when they say things like this. That God of the Old Testament, boy, he's rough, he's mean. He opens up the earth and swallows people, and boy, he's nasty. Don't like that guy. <laughs> that just shows they haven't read it. Because it sh- if you read it, you'll see just how patient he was with them. You would have swallowed them up a lot sooner, trust me. And those of you who are thinking, no, I probably wouldn't have, you haven't had children yet. <laughs> you don't know yourself <laughs> well enough yet. <laughs> he should have consumed them long ago. We see his anger is kindled here, and rightly so. He's been so good to them and so patient with them. His his anger is kindled against them. And then look at the second part of verse 8. It says, And he sold them into slavery. God did it. He sold them into the hands of Kushan. Now what does that mean? What did that look like? Do we really think when it says he sold them into the hand of King Kushan, that the king was just out one day, and all of a sudden, all these people of Israel standing before him with price tags on their wrists, and he's like, oh, that looks like a good deal. I'll take it. Thanks for selling them to me. God? No, that's not what it looked like. What it looked like is this king had a desire in his heart one day that he thought was his own and that in one way was his own to invade the nation of Israel, beat them, take all their good stuff, and take a lot of them as slaves. That's what he wanted to do. And he rallied his troops to do it, and he provided them with all the weapons that they would need and the food and the water that they would need, and they went out on an excursion that may have taken weeks, even months, and they did it because they wanted to do it. That's what it looked like. God is the one who is told, we're told he sold them into slavery. But guess what? King Kushan wanted to. He woke up and wanted to one day. God's ultimately behind it. And the people of Israel, look at that. This is the other part of verse 8. And the people of Israel served him for eight years. Eight years. Okay? There's some in this room who are still very small. You haven't even been alive for eight years. It's longer than you've even been on planet Earth. (laughs) Eight years. Think about where you were eight years ago. Where were you in 2015? Okay? No, no, no. 14, right? Where were you? Wherever you were then, that's how, that amount of time, that's how long the people were enslaved. It's a long time. It's a long time. We were still on the mission field. It's been a long time. So, they're enslaved. Their actions had consequences. They stirred up God's anger. He was so very patient with him, but he'd had enough. 
and he sold them into slavery. Then look at verse 9 though. Verse 9. The very first word in verse 9 is the word but. We know it's a contrast word. Things are about to change. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer from the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. We'll talk more about that in a second because we know Caleb. So when the people of Israel cry out, look at this, the Lord raised up a deliverer. Earlier, we're told the Lord sold them. Now we're told the Lord raised up a deliverer. This is the sequence. I made, I made a, a slide that, that gives us the, really the sequence of event from verses 7 through 9. Verses 7 through 9. This is, this is, this is what happened, right? Verse 7 says that the people did evil. Verse 8, God brought judgment in response to their disobedience. Verse 9, the people cried out. Second part of verse 9, God brought deliverance in response. Oops, I put a P there, sorry. That's supposed to just say response to their repentance, okay? So this is the order of things that people do evil. God says judgment. People change their heart. People say, we are sorry for what we did. God comes and says, I'll rescue you. I'll rescue you. That's why I titled it, look what the people did, look what they did, and look what God did. Both times, God's the one who does the, either the judgment or the bringing up. And both times, the people are the ones who either do the sinning or do the repenting. Both are involved here. God ultimately sovereign over everything. But God's the one who will bring judgment. And God's the one who will bring deliverance. And that's true in your life as well. Those of you who don't yet know the Lord, and by the way, you can know the Lord right now. It is open. Salvation is open to anyone and everyone right now who will repent and turn from his sins and trust in Christ, which we'll talk more about here in just a second. But I want to let you know, today's the day of salvation. There's nothing keeping you from Jesus Christ except your own love for your own sin. Turn away from it and come to Christ. He is compassionate to sinners. So these people do evil and they get judgment which is what we all deserve for our sins. You know, we really like justice. I like watching, I told you guys, I like watching cops. I, I, like, I like it when the bad guys get what they deserve. I'm like, yes, get him, he's bad. Tackle him harder, you know? Especially when they're driving through cars, lanes of traffic way too fast. I think, what if my wife was in her minivan and you just hit her? And so then I think, like I'm the cop and I'm chasing the bad guy. I'm like, ooh, he did not tackle you hard enough. I would have tackled you so much harder. So I like to watch that, don't you? We're like, yes, get the bad guy. But we don't really like the thought of ourselves getting justice, do we? No, we, we, we don't like that. 
We're like, yes, he deserves that, or she deserves that, or whatever. Maybe it's not even on the show Cops. Maybe it's just something else. But then when it comes to us, we're like, oh, but I'd like mercy, please. (laughs) The Lord was right to judge the people. He did nothing wrong. They did something wrong. And the Lord would have actually been just in leaving them there when they repented. He didn't have to. He was not beholden to them in any way. But he shows mercy, doesn't he? He shows mercy to them and gives them something that they don't deserve, which is deliverance. They didn't deserve it, but he gave it to them. Proverbs 3, verses 33 through 35 is really applicable to what happened there to them. Proverbs 3, 33 through 35 The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, (laughs) but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners, he's scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. Isn't that what happened to them? The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. So applicable to them and to us. So let's talk about how God brought deliverance in response to their repentance. It came in the form of this young man named Othniel. Well, calls him the younger brother. He may not have been so young at this point in his life. Othniel, Caleb's younger brother. Remember Caleb? There were two men, only two, among the spies that were sent in to spy out the land when the people of Israel had freshly come out of Egypt and they were going to the promised land. They were going towards it And 12 spies, one from each of the tribes, is sent to spy out the land and say, hey, what's it like? And they come back and they say, sure enough, what God said, it is a good land. Let me tell you, look at these grapes even. They're the size of baseballs. They're amazing. However, you know what's also big in the land? The people. We look like grasshoppers compared to them. And, this is the southern uh, paraphrase, ain't no way we can take that land. Jonathan and Caleb speak up and they say, excuse me, there is a way. Your memory is too short. Do you not recall what just happened in Egypt? What God did for us? Surely we can take the land. God's with us. And the people say, We're more than you. You're outvoted. Sorry. God said everyone who had doubted him would die in the wilderness as they wandered for 40 years. And the ones that didn't were Joshua and Caleb. They were the only ones who didn't pass away during that time. And they were allowed to see the promised land. And they went in. And therefore, we have now Caleb's younger brother, who's in a blessed state. This reminds me of what we read in Exodus 20, verse 6 earlier. God said, the curse goes on to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But I show steadfast love to thousands to those 
who love me and keep my commandments. What's the next part of Caleb's family like? A brother, a younger brother. How much younger? We don't know. The younger brother who is walking with the Lord. In what way? Verse 10, the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. And for those of you who weren't here, this is not like a judge with a gavel. This is a judge like a leader. He leads, he rescues. Caleb's younger brother saw the blessing of the Lord as well. His brother was faithful. His brother left a good example, didn't he? Older brother leaves a great example of how to trust God in the face of calamity. Younger brother picks up on that, says, I'm going to do that too. Older siblings, let me tell you, you influence your younger siblings more than you think either for good or for evil. They're watching you, and they're taking your example, usually whether you like it or not. The younger brother here was blessed. He was blessed. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And then notice it says he went out to war. This goes back to what we saw earlier in verse verse 2. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war Well, here we are. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan into his hand. This Cushan, who was earlier powerful enough to invade the nation and scoop up all these people, was now nothing compared to the Lord, a judge who had the spirit of the Lord upon him, could not prevail. Why? Because it says his hand prevailed over Kushan. Why? The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Why? Because he believed God and he trusted God. Some of you are not seeing the Lord's presence and power in your life as much as you could, and it's because you're not trusting in God as much as you should and not believing his word as much as you should. This is not to shame you at all. This is to get you out of a rut. This gets me out of my ruts too when I realize I'm not trusting God enough and I'm not, and I'm not believing his word enough. For some reason I've stopped. For some reason I've got a little bit lazy here. Are you in a rut? Maybe that's why. And again, that's to help you. That's to encourage you, okay? Because I'm like you and I've been there. Steadfast love is on thousands of those who love him and keep his commands. So Othniel goes out to war, and his hand prevailed. This reminds me also of our great judge, if you want to call him that, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ also went to battle and also prevailed. He triumphed over our enemy with his war that he fought on the cross. His hand prevailed. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Listen to this. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, says this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of 
debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And here's where we get our battle language. He disarmed the rulers and authority and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. How did God triumph over our sin and the rulers and authorities that had power in our life? By that, it's talking about satanic ones. How did he do it? By triumphing over them in him through the cross. Jesus Christ, who deserved no judgment. He perfectly kept the law. He perfectly obeyed the Father's will. Yet he willingly chose to take the punishment that you and I deserve. That's what the cross is about. He took your punishment. He did not deserve it. Yet he took it. And drank down every drop of God's wrath. And then we read in verse 11 of our text. So the land had rest, how many years? Forty years. Then Othniel died. They were in captive. They were in slavery for eight years. Yet they had rest for 40 had rest for 40 years, five times the length that they were in slavery for, they got rest for. Rest. Jesus said something about rest too. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke, the yoke we talked about earlier, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Also talking about rest. Listen to this. The author of Hebrews in chapter 4 had a long section where he talked about rest. And he makes reference back to exactly where we are in Judges. And right before Judges under Joshua. He makes reference to it. So this ties in perfectly. And he wraps it all up with a beautiful bow In Jesus Christ. Listen to this. This is where I'm going to end. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened, which is what we see here. The people were faithless. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my raft, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he, he, had, he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his work. And again in the passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. That's our people. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Same thing I would say to you. The Lord Jesus is calling out to you. Don't harden your hearts. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, Joshua, there's our man, we're talking about rest in the land, right? Right? If he'd given them eternal rest, then why the rest of this? 
God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's talking about rest in Christ. Rest from our works. We don't have to work for our salvation. Why? Because God's already done the work in Jesus Christ. Christ is our rest. That's why, speaking of the Sabbath day here and everything, that's why if you have a friends who are Seventh-day Adventist, this is where you would go to show them, I'm actually already in re- resting in Christ. I keep the Sabbath in Christ. He's my Sabbath rest. I'm resting in Christ because he's done all the work for me. And as the people of Israel were given this rest for 40 years, that rest was pointing to a bigger, better, greater rest that you and I get in Jesus Christ, if you're in Jesus Christ today. And if you're not, today is the day of salvation for you. Please don't harden your hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all the wonderful truth we see in this text, Lord. It is rich, it is good, and Lord, I pray that you have spoken to us, and I pray that you would now apply that eternal truth to our hearts. Lord, I ask, of course, that you would please help us not to be like these people, spurning your word, going after the ways of the world, compromising in little things that then lead us to compromise in bigger things things. Lord, help us to not think that if we will just disobey in this one small part, surely that won't matter. Lord, help us to learn from these people that that will only bring us judgment, discipline. If we are yours, it'll bring discipline upon us. But we thank you so much that it's just like Othniel was the one who delivered the people by your great hand. We thank you so much that you sent us Jesus Christ to deliver us from our slavery to sin. Thank you so much for your dear son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.